All right, so last night was movie night at Johnny and Leslie's home. And um, so while we're waiting for the kids to be dismissed, I'm going to give you a movie quote. And we're going to see if anybody in the room knows the movie, okay? I bet not, but let's find out, okay? Here it is, ready? On the run from Johnny Law, ain't no trip to Cleveland. That's it. Anybody? I didn't think anybody would know it. Just me, right? Nobody else knows that. On the run from Johnny Law, ain't no trip to Cleveland. It was Owen Wilson. Does that help? Nobody? No. The movie's Bottle Rocket. Anybody seen Bottle Rocket? Yeah, it's a pretty, it's a, it's a niche film, okay? Very niche film, 90s. Okay, anyways. Uh, one of my favorite movie quotes. Um, the reason I thought of that is because this morning we're going we're gonna to start 1 Samuel 21, and, and David is on the run, okay? So on the run from John. I don't know. For some reason that popped into my head. And, um, but forget that. That was a pretty poor way to start a sermon. But let's go for it. <clears throat> First, so, all right, all right. Thank, thank you, Paxton. Appreciate that. It was an attempt at bridging the gap between certain nursery dismissal and, okay. Anyways, 1 Samuel 21, verse 1. This is actually God's holy word. Everything else was nonsense. Okay. Then David came to Nob to Ahimelech the priest, and Ahimelech came to meet David trembling and said to him, why are you alone and no one with you? So David runs from Saul's house to the priests in a town called Nob, and these priests, um, you may not know, are descendants of Eli's house. Now, if you remember from 1 Samuel earlier in the book, Eli's house was cursed by God. And so that kind of makes this a strange place for David to go. But that's where he goes first. And I want you to notice that Ahimelech is afraid. He knows something's up. Okay? Verse 2. David said to Ahimelech the priest... The king has charged me with a matter and said to me, Let no one know anything of the matter about which I send you and with which I have charged you. I have made an appointment with the young men for such and such a place. So, David lies. That's a a straight up lie. Now, some commentators suggest, well, David's intention was to try and protect the priest by giving him plausible deniability, right? If Saul comes looking for David, the priest can say, I didn't know you were mad at David. But it's still a lie. David still broke a commandment. And this is going to be a weird chapter, so just hang on. I... 
I think that first of all, we need to be careful of romanticizing Bible characters. Um, David is not Jesus. He's a man. And right now, at least for several verses, maybe this whole chapter, David doesn't look much like a king in 1 Samuel 21. Okay? Verse 3. Now then, what do you have on hand? David says, give me five loaves of bread or whatever is here. And the priest answered David, I have no common bread on hand, but there is holy bread. If the young men have kept themselves from women. And David answered the priest, truly women have been kept from us as always when I go on an expedition. The vessels of the young men are holy even when it is an ordinary journey. How much more today will their vessels be holy? So the priest gave him the holy bread, for there was no bread there but the bread of the presence, which is removed from before the Lord to be replaced by hot bread on the day it's taken away. This is a really odd story because David and his men, whoever they are, were not priests. Only priests were supposed to eat this bread. It's also odd because of the sexual conversation that they're having. Right? What does abstinence have to do with this? And that's a good question to ask because David David could try to make the argument that they were ceremonially clean but not holy. And it actually sounds like if you if you read it this way that David's sort of a fast-talking salesman at work, okay, trying to get a meal. Um more odd is the fact that in Matthew 12, Jesus explicitly teaches that David did nothing wrong. David talks his way into eating forbidden bread, but Jesus says it's, it's okay. And so at this point, what I want to suggest to you is that David is actually starting to remind me of another Bible character. And I'm going to see if you picked up on it, okay? And the next verse kind of brings that into focus. Verse 7. Now, a certain man of the servants of Saul was there that day, detained before the Lord. His name was Doeg the Edomite, the chief of Saul's herdsmen. This verse is like, seems really random in the middle of the story. doesn't make much sense why it's here, but we'll come back to it in a minute. But what I want to point out to you is that the Edomites, if you remember, were descendants of Esau. Esau, the firstborn son of Isaac. His younger brother, Jacob, known as the deceiver, swindled Esau out of his birthright using a meal. Do you remember this? 
And then God changed Jacob's name to Israel and Jacob became the chosen forefather of Israel instead of Esau. And then the Edomites kind of fade into the background until now. And I don't think it's a coincidence because David in this chapter sort of reminds me of Jacob. He's coming across a bit like a con artist. There's this deception with the priest. If you remember in the last chapter, there was actually deception with Jonathan and Saul and the plot to figure out what Saul was thinking. But there's more. Okay, look, verse 8. Then David said to Ahimelech, Then have you not here a spear or a sword at hand? For I have brought neither my sword nor my weapons with me because the king's business required haste. There it is again, another lie. He's not on a mission from Saul. Verse 9. And the priest said, The sword of Goliath, the Philistine, whom he struck down in the valley of Elah, Behold, it is here wrapped in a cloth behind the ephod. If you will take that, take it, for there is none but that here. And David said, there is none like that. Give it to me. And this is also weird. Why does David want the sword of Goliath? Verse 10. And David rose and fled that day from Saul and went to... Achish, the king of Gath. Now, if I had a sound effects machine up here, I would push the button and play the one where the record stops abruptly. You know that sound? Like, okay? Or like um, a car slamming on its brakes, okay? Just like when you get to the word Gath, If you've been paying attention to the story, the whole story, this is really weird. David decides that the best place to run from Saul was to the king of Gath. Let me remind you that Gath is the city Goliath was from. Which means David chooses to run to a Philistine king in a Philistine city. Verse 11. The servants of Achish said to him, Is not this David the king of the land? Did they not sing to one another of him in dances? Saul has struck down his thousands and David his tens of thousands. So the Philistines are not idiots. They immediately recognize David because of course they do. Because he is their mortal enemy. He killed their champion. He's carrying the dude's sword. They've even heard the Israelite songs. And to be clear, most of the ten thousands that David killed were probably Philistines. You see why this is weird? Going to Gath makes no sense at all. It was crazy. David walks into Goliath's hometown carrying Goliath's sword. What was he thinking? Verse 12. 
David took these words to heart and was much afraid of Achish the king of Gath. So, he changed his behavior before them and pretended to be insane in their hands and made marks on the doors of the gate and let spittle run down his beard. Okay. Uh, Guys, I had so much fun studying this passage. David at least has the sense to realize after he goes there that this was probably a mistake, okay? And so he turns to more deception. You see why I'm starting to think of Jacob? He pretends to be crazy. And of course, that works because what sane person would walk into the city of their greatest enemies? So the king is like, this dude is nuts. Verse 14, Then Achish said to his servants, Behold, you see the man is mad. Why then have you brought him to me? Do I lack madmen that you have brought this fellow to behave as a madman in my presence? Shall this fellow come into my house? So what's really interesting is that this story, these few verses inspired two of David's best psalms. Psalm 34 and Psalm 56. And in those psalms, David writes, he knows that he's surrounded by enemies. And those psalms both talk about trusting God to deliver him. But what's weird is that neither Psalm 34 nor 56 explains why in the world David went there in the first place. Why would David put himself among his enemies? And so this is the end of chapter 21. And as we leave this chapter and turn to chapter 22, I think the message so far... Is, is this. God has been absent in this story, by the way. This is just history. But it's this. The king doesn't look much like a king right now. I want you to keep that thought in the back of your mind as we continue. Now we're in chapter 22, verse 1. David departed from there and escaped to the cave of Adullam. So now David is hiding in a cave... And he's going to spend a lot of time in caves. Um, Remember from several chapters ago when the Israelites were hiding in caves and tombs from the Philistines, we talked about that imagery of death. Remember that? Continues, And when his brothers and all his father's house heard it, they went down there to him. And everyone who was in distress, and everyone who was in debt, And everyone who is bitter in soul gathered to him. And he became became commander over them. And there were with him about 400 men. Now again, you, you could say he's starting to look like a king because people are coming to him, right? But he's hiding in a cave with a small army of vagabonds. 
these men who run to David, they were the outcasts. They were the distressed. They were, you know, men in debt, it says. Men bitter in soul. In other words, these are men with nothing left to lose. So David basically started a gang. It's one way to look at it. After a few other details, the this, this story, uh, which are interesting, and you should look at them, but for the sake of time, the story shifts back to Saul. And I'm going to summarize briefly what happens next. Saul gathers all of his men, and he's looking for information on David. But none of the Israelite men are willing to betray David. No one is willing to sell him out. But guess who does? Doeg the Edomite from verse 7 in the last chapter. He tells Saul about David's visit to the priests in Nob. So Saul travels to Nob and he confronts Ahimelech and condemns the priests to death. Okay, so we're going to pick up here in verse 16. And the king said, You shall surely die, Ahimelech, you and all your father's house. And the king said to the guard who stood about him, Turn and kill the priests of the Lord, because their hand also is with David. And they knew that he fled and did not disclose it to me. But the servants of the king would not put out their hand to strike the priests of the Lord. Verse 18. Then the king said to Doeg, You turn and strike the priests. And Doeg the Edomite turned and struck down the priests. And he killed... On that day, 85 persons who wore the linen ephod. In Nob, the city of the priests, he put to the sword. Both man and woman, child and infant, ox, donkey, and sheep, he put to the sword. Now, do you remember why? Do you remember why God decided to take the kingdom away from Saul? It was because Saul failed to completely destroy the Amalekites. Saul had been unfaithful to God when God told him to destroy everything and everyone in a pagan city. But now, Saul decides to completely destroy a city of God's priests. Because they were unfaithful to him. And this time, he didn't even keep the animals for sacrifices. He killed everyone and everything that lived. Saul has become a godless king. He has become like all the other kings. This is what Samuel had warned Israel would happen. And this is what Israel asked for.
So that's the story for today. And I've covered a lot of information. So what do we do with it? Why does this matter? Why should we care? The first thing I think we need to realize is that many of the things that we want in our lives, the things that we think we need, the things that we don't think we can live without, the things that, you know, I will not be happy, I will not be content unless I have this. Those things might end up destroying us. That's one of the primary lessons of the book of Samuel. The the people wanted a king like all the other nations. And that's what they got. That's what they got. Remember Saul's name means you asked for it? So it's kind of like, I told you so. And if we're honest about our lives, many of the things that we think we need or that in the past we thought we needed, they have turned out to be a disappointment. Have they not? Didn't make us happy. Didn't solve our problems. It was more difficult than we thought it would be. It it never was enough. And if God leaves us to just have our way, to get what we want, do you realize it may end up destroying us in the end? That that's the point? It's what He's trying to get our attention to show us. That is the first lesson. Another way to say it is this. I'm the greatest enemy to my own happiness. Me, my heart, I'm the greatest enemy to my own happiness. It reminds me of the lyrics from um, a song by Drew Holcomb. It says, we want the spark, but we don't want the burn. We want the love, but we don't want the hurt. You want what you can't have. Since the Garden of Eden, it's been like that. You can't tear down the tree or pull up all the weeds, spend your life looking for the greener grass. You want what you can't have. And the real problem is that God created us to want Him, but we don't. He should have been enough for Israel. God as their king. It should have been enough. He should be enough for us. But there's something in the heart of sinful man that just does not want God to be king. Which is what made us His enemies in the first place. And so that's the problem. But what did God do? Well, he did something really, really crazy. You remember the question that I asked earlier? I mean, why would David choose to put himself among his enemies? 
Remember how both of the Psalms that David wrote about that story, they don't really address that question. David talks about being surrounded by enemies, but doesn't mention that he put himself there by choice. He went to the king of Achish. He went to Gath. Why did he do this? What sane person would walk willingly into a city full of people that hated him? Brothers and sisters, do you realize that's what Jesus did? And there there are so many, and it's a strange chapter, but there are so many parallels to Jesus in chapter 21. Jesus was also constantly on the move. Jesus had nowhere to lay His head. He was the leader of of essentially a band of vagabonds, right? The disciples. He ate forbidden bread on the Sabbath, which is the context of Matthew 12, where He talks about this story of David. He didn't look much to us like the king of the universe. But most of all, Jesus came here to the earth on purpose. He placed His life in the hands of His enemies. And unlike David, Jesus did not survive the encounter. We crucified Him. And why did Jesus do it? And this is the most striking parallel in the story. David was hungry, right? And the only thing available to David to eat was something that he did not deserve. Something that he couldn't have. He wanted it. And strangely, the priest gave it to him anyway. And for some reason, Jesus said it was okay. And I want to suggest to you that that story only makes sense because of the gospel. It doesn't actually make sense otherwise. Because Jesus Himself is the bread we don't deserve. He is the holy bread, the bread of life, which is what He actually calls Himself in John 6. And does any of us think that we deserve that bread? That we are clean enough, that we are holy enough, that we are set apart enough to be able to take that bread and consume it? Of course not. And so if you put it all together, this weird story, this is how the gospel is being presented to us by Samuel. We all want something we can't have. And we think it's all this other stuff. But God is offering us something better. Something that we don't deserve. Something that we could never earn. Something that we couldn't and shouldn't have. Which is Himself. Christ Himself, the Son of God, the Savior of sinners. Offers Himself to us. He walked among His enemies and we crucified Him. But He raised on the third day. 
And I want to end with the words of Jesus from John 6. He says this to us. Do not work for the food that perishes, but for the food that endures to eternal life, which the Son of Man will give to you. For on Him God the Father has set His seal. Then they, the disciples, said to Him, What must we do to be doing the works of God? And Jesus answered them, This is the work of God, that you believe in Him whom He has sent. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, give us this day our daily bread. We thank You for the way Your Word is always pointing us to Jesus Christ, Your Holy Son, the Holy One of Israel. And Father, I pray that the bread He offers us, the bread of His Word, the bread of His life, the bread that was bought at a great price, that bread would be sufficient for us. It would be enough that we would be satisfied this morning in Him. That everything else in this life would fade far into the background. And that Your deep love for us, Your vast unmeasured love for us, would be enough for us to feast and to be content no matter what happens in this life. All the hurts, all the wrongs, all the things we've suffered, all the fears, none of it can take that away. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Let's stand together and sing.